Well, I hope you've had a great time this morning. We're about to have even more fun in the Bible. So if you would take your Bible this morning and turn to Acts chapter 3 today. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to be looking at the God-changing moment. We're in our God-changer series, or our game-changer series, excuse me. And, and uh, we're going to be looking today at a game-changing moment uh, for one particular man in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. By the way, let me just say to you... Um, uh, we're having a great time with our satellite, and again, had another good week uh, up there this week. Uh, last week, I told you I preached there before I uh, came here, and I, I want you to keep praying for that great group of people in the North uh, Campus, because we're going to be having the cross service up there on the Saturday before Easter. We'll have it the Friday before Easter right here in this room, so keep that in mind, but Saturday up there. And uh, we're wanting to reach a whole new group of people. But one of the things that we're going to be doing in days ahead, having to do with the Euless campus, is of great importance to you. Last week or two, we've made some key decisions that would release our architects to begin drawing uh, some renderings or some conceptual drawings for us so that we can make a presentation to our church and look at some big concepts and uh, what we call conceptuals or schematic drawings and then get input from our congregation. So that's what we're going to be doing in these weeks ahead. Two weeks from now, on March 24th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to have a dream day or a dream session where we can come together and we can get input from our congregation about how best to use the ULIS campus facilities for the future. Five, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, we want to have a powerful impact, both salt and light, on our community. God has placed us here. We have incredible opportunities ahead of us. And so we're looking forward to that, but we need your input. So the 24th, three o'clock in the afternoon, we'll give you more details about that. But dream with us, pray with us, ask God to give us directions about this. Not only will we have a large group meeting, but we'll also break down so that everybody can be part of the conversation two weeks from now. So let that be your first notice. You'll hear more about that in the days ahead. Uh, the buildings are an important part of reaching people. That's why uh, we have a place to gather. We have a place to meet in small groups. A place for ministry is a big deal. So our prayers are that God would lead us well and that we would hear him well. All right? If you have your Bibles, please stand as we begin in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, which has become over this past week a very, very important passage for me. Now, the other side of Pentecost, the disciples are starting to walk full of the Holy Spirit. Peter stood up and preached, and 3,000 come to faith. 3,000 on that day are baptized. They begin to meet together, and everyone keeps feeling a sense of awe, and signs and wonders are taking place. Expectation is high. But now they go about their everyday life as followers of Christ, on this side of the resurrection, this side of being full of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at what that looks like, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, this is one of three hours during the course of the Jewish day in which time was set aside for prayer. So they're going up at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. 
But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood up upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg on. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Man, isn't that a great passage? I said to the early crowd, I mean, you don't even have to preach this. Just read it and people can come to faith and cry. But I'm going to preach it anyway. Let's bow together. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for an encouraging text of Scripture that reminds us to anticipate your power at work anytime, unexpectedly, powerfully, immediately. Lord, today, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. Man, what a great passage of Scripture. This last week, as we were studying one of our one of our pastors said he'd seen a movie years ago, and the movie was called Vantage Point. I said the unique thing about this movie was that it was a movie of an assassination attempt in Europe, and that it was portrayed from the vantage point of several witnesses. A Secret Service agent, it showed his perspective, and then it showed the perspective of a person in the crowd, and then a person on the stage, and so forth, until you saw all the angles of the supposed assassination attempt. It was a great idea. When I read the book uh, of Acts, and when I read Acts chapter 3 in particular, I see this miracle unfolding from a number of vantage points, and we're going to look at that today. First of all, I want us to look through the eyes of the man on the ground, a view from the ground, I call it. Because long before Peter and John come to this place and see this man, this man has been begging from this spot for 40 years. Try to imagine that if you would. Look in verse 2. The Scripture says, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. You read that verse, that one verse, and you know just about everything you need to know about this man. Who is this man? He's a beggar. What's wrong with him? He's been lame from birth. How did he get there? His friends bring him and set him down there. Why is he there? He just wants something to eat. Think about the length of time that he's been there. In chapter 4, we learn he's been there for 40 years. You know, you and I don't often know that kind of life. We haven't experienced anything quite like that. A few years ago, on my first trip to India, I met a young girl, about 12 years old at the time, and this young girl had been lame from birth. She couldn't walk. She was able to use her arms. And they created kind of, a, kind of a crude skateboard kind of thing for her to sit on and propel herself along on the ground. In fact, not only did they create a, a skateboard for her, but they also took pieces of wood and leather straps and gave her some wood pushers, if you will. And she just pushed her away everywhere she went. And everywhere I went, this girl seemed to be there showing up and moving along with the crowd everywhere she could. But it was obvious that this girl was lame from birth and probably would be lame for all of her life. And I looked at that picture and I said, why? Why, Lord? Have you ever asked God why when it comes to some of those perplexing and disappointing and discouraging kinds of 
circumstances like this man, like that girl, or like someone else that you know today. Have you ever asked why? And I can't imagine how long and how many times this man has, got, has, has asked God, why? Why am I lame? Why is everyone else walking by me able to walk? Why are they able to take care of themselves? Why do I have to beg for them? Why is this happening to me? And I think it's a legitimate question. You know, when we read the Bible, we reason, we see some reasons why sickness and why tragedy happens to people. There are several ways that it happens. Let me give you some of those just, just to set aside this idea for just a moment of why. Sometimes sickness is from sin. There's no doubt about it. We can send ourselves into sickness. We can damage our own body. We can eat ourselves into uh, unhealthy lifestyles. We can uh, put things in our bodies. We can do things that are unhealthy and create sickness. Some sickness comes from sin. Some is sometimes caused by Satan. The Bible says that. Jesus mentioned several that are bound by Satan for a number of years. So some sickness comes from Satan. Some sickness is unto death. All of us will age. All of us will get older. All of us will die of something. No one is exempt from death. Death and taxes are certain, right? And certainly death is. And so we'll all die of something. Some sickness is unto death. But some sickness, the Bible says, is also for the glory of God. Some sickness happens because God is going to use that sickness to cause a person to rise above or to actually heal them and bring great glory and honor to himself. And I think we can safely assume that this man's sickness was not because of sin. It was not because of Satan. It was not unto death. But this man's sickness was caused and allowed for the glory of God. And by the time you get to the end of this passage, you're going to be glorifying God for this man's sickness and his healing. Sickness can bring glory to God as it has here. But this man at the moment doesn't know that. God is going to change his life, but he doesn't have any awareness of that. From the ground, there is hopelessness. Get in his shoes, so to speak, if you can. There is hopelessness, and all he had known was being carried and placed at the gates to beg for food. Alms is the word in the Bible that describes food or money that people give you so that you can have food. And giving alms is considered an act of compassion. The Bible affirms the giving of food or the giving of alms to people who are in need. And this man knows that, and he knows there's a crowd, thousands of people that are coming into the temple. So this man is smart. He's wise. He gets to the right place where the people are coming in who want, in some sense, to give alms or to help others. And he's in that place, but he never thinks that he's going to get anything but food. He's shut out of the temple. He can't go in because he is lame, and the requirements of temple worship are that that's not allowed. Hopelessness looks like this. There's no hope for improvement in his life. There's no sense of change about to take place. There's no future for him. He cannot get up. He cannot walk away. He simply is existing and he, by his very situation, is a symbol and a picture of all humanity, spiritually speaking. Because we're all lame spiritually from birth. Because we're all hopeless spiritually. Because we can't do anything about our condition spiritually. Because we have to have others somehow serve us spiritually. And like this man who's living on handoff, 
We're living on handoffs and handouts. We live on the handout of money, which helps us move along a little bit, or status, which kind of fills our empty souls sometimes, or sex, which seems to give us some sort of satisfaction, or hobbies, or alcohol, or drugs. We can name all those things. People who are lame spiritually are looking for those kinds of hands out to make it from day to day, like this man was looking for the handout just to exist for one more day of begging. That's the view from the ground. And then the disciples come by. And we see a view from the disciples' perspective. Look at what it says there in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Let's note some things about these disciples. I think there's great insights for us. Here are the disciples just on the other side of Pentecost. Now, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been with Jesus for three years, but now Jesus has said to them, it's expedient that I go away because if I don't go away, then I can't send the helper. But if I go away, I send the helper. He will be in you. He will abide with you forever. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will empower you. And he's given these commands and now fulfilled that promise. So now Peter and, and John are walking with the power of the Holy Spirit where before they've only walked with Jesus. It's more powerful to walk full of the Holy Spirit than simply walking with Jesus, and that's what they're doing. And look what we see about their lives. It's instrumental to see some things about their life. Number one, see the habit of prayer. The Bible says here that they're going up to the temple at the ninth hour. They've seen Jesus' emphasis on prayer. They've watched Jesus, and here they are on the other side of Pentecost practicing the habit of prayer. Let me just tell you about prayer. Prayer brings a habit that lays down a foundation for you to walk with God more than anything else. Prayer is incredibly important to our lives. And so because Jesus said to pray, because Jesus taught them to pray, because they want to be obedient on the other side of Pentecost, they're building the spiritual discipline called prayer, talking to God about the things that are important to us and him. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, they would have heard Jesus say this, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And they would have heard Jesus tell that parable. Paul, years later, writes back about prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Three great words. Pray without ceasing. Say it with me. Pray without ceasing. What a practice. It doesn't mean we're always on our face, but it means we're always dependent upon God. It means that we're always calling out because we know we need him. The habit of prayer. Let me tell you what happens when you have a habit of prayer. When you spend just a few minutes in prayer every day, you, you get to know the God you're praying to much better. And you get to know his heart, his passion, his priority. You began to learn to listen to the voice of God a whole lot better. Some of us wouldn't know the voice of God if it slapped us in the face because we never spend time with God. But it's important when you spend time with God, you recognize his voice, you know his voice, and you can better follow his voice. Prayer is incredibly important. Nobody will ever be an expert prayer because it's relational. It's not the amount of hours you pray. It's not the style of your prayer. It's not how loud or soft your prayer. It's not whether you write it down or speak it out loud. It's not that. It's about, it's about the fact that you do pray, that you do talk to God. It's about you coming to God. He's not looking for, pe for perfection. He's looking for you to open your heart up to him. A habit of prayer. And they continued a habit of three times a day praying at, at the temple, even though they weren't required to do that because it was important to them.
to maintain the habit of prayer. Secondly, you'll notice an ear for the Spirit. They were listening to the voice of the Spirit. If you look in verse 4, you'll see that Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. I don't know how many times those disciples had walked by this lame man before this moment, but at this moment, all of a sudden, they're hearing the voice of the Spirit, and they're doing something completely different. In the English, as well as in the Greek, you see an adversity, a word that says change of direction. That's the word but. So this man is at the temple, and he's wanting to beg He saw Peter and John. He began asking them to receive alms. But in verse 4, it says, but Peter, contrary to what normally happens, contrary to what everybody else did, contrary maybe even to what Peter and John had done before, Peter, along with John, fixes his gaze on him and really begins to be aware of this man's need. In other words, the Spirit of God is now starting to direct Peter and John towards this man's need, and he has an ear for the Spirit, Peter does, and he speaks to this man. This is a different day. This is what's setting the disciples apart from what they were before. Mere followers of Jesus, but now infused and empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're aware of what God wants to do on a moment-by-moment basis. That's powerful for a disciple of Jesus Christ. A heart for faith as well. By the way, when you have an ear for the Spirit and you're willing to walk by faith, you're never more like Jesus than then. Did you know that Jesus always, he said this, I always do the things that my Father tells me. Man, what kind of a life would that be if we always did what the Father told us to do? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being able to say that? Now, I know it's Jesus that says it, and I know that, that Jesus is the only Son of God and God the Son, but, but think about that statement, the fact that he said that to us. And when we hear God and when we respond to God, we're never more like Jesus than then. That's powerful. And those disciples were moving that way. They were warning to be like Jesus. Now, this heart of faith. Look at verse 6 for a moment. Because this man expected to receive something from them, it says in verse 5. But this man thought he was going to get some food. He, he was going to get some money or food to purchase another meal. But here again is this starting of a sentence in verse 6. But Peter, contrary to the path. Contrary to expectations. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Man, that's a great line. Wow. Can you imagine? From the ground, hearing the word walk, but this time with power and authority. Now, we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But there's some lessons here for us about what Peter did and what John did that are very, very important. And that is, there are times when God speaks to us that we must walk by faith to accomplish what he wants to do at that moment. These disciples have watched Jesus perform all kinds of miracles and had all kinds of faith lessons. Do you know that almost every time you face adversity and difficulty, every time you're hitting a wall and can't break through, every time you don't know the solution to the problem that you have and you begin to turn to God, you are living out a faith lesson where God is going to teach you what it means to walk by faith and to follow his way instead of your way and maybe see the other side that you haven't seen before by following him. And Jesus taught the disciples to do that. He taught them through some powerful things that you and I will well remember, like the feeding of the multitude, 
Remember that day when all the people came up and gathered around Jesus and they'd been listening to him for days and they were hungry and the disciples come to Jesus and said, you've got to send the crowds home because we don't have any food and they're starving, they're hungry. They've been here for a long time. And Jesus says, you feed them. Think about that statement, you feed them. They don't have any food. They say, Lord, we don't have any food. We don't have any money. All the money we have wouldn't buy much at all. And Jesus said, what food do you have? Well, there's a young lad here who has some loaves and fish. Bring those to me. And so these disciples have to act by faith and bring those to Jesus. Jesus blesses and breaks them and gives them to the disciples, and they distribute them among the crowd of thousands of people. And when it's all said and done, there are 12 baskets left over as a punctuation of this lesson of faith that says, not only can I feed all of them, I'll give you a to-go order, and you can take it with you. Believe me when I tell you what I can do. Shortly after that, they get in the boat and go to the other side, and Jesus has commanded them to do that, and of course, the storm comes along. And the storm doesn't come to defeat them, and it doesn't come to sink them, but it comes so that they might learn to believe, to obey God no matter what. And before that storm is over, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And as they see him, at first they think it's a ghost, but then they realize, no, it can't be a ghost. It's got to be Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus says, come. And there again, Peter's got to learn again. All right, if this is for real, I've got to step out of the boat and walk somehow on this water. But these are lessons of faith that cause us to learn to follow him. These disciples who had these lessons of faith are now listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when they said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk, it's at his prompting, and it's by faith. These are faith lessons for us. A couple of things here that you need to note about what they do. First of all, notice that the name of Jesus has power. The name of Jesus has power. Notice they didn't say, in the name of the church, in the name of my good intentions, in the name of everyone, everyone that wants you to walk, in the name of hope for your life. No, in the name of Jesus, walk. The name of Jesus has power. I was a young pastor when I first learned that Jesus and the name of Jesus has power even over demons and demon-possessed and demon-harassed people. It was a stunning thing for me. You can read it in the book, but when you're confronted with sheer evil and you call out in the name of Jesus and that evil submits to that, then you know there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus to forgive sin. There's power in the name of Jesus to eradicate evil. It's there. And you have this lesson. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. That's the first lesson. The name of Jesus has power. Secondly, I want you to know that all they did was at the name, at the word of the Lord, at the word of the Lord. Let me just say this, that everything Jesus did, he did at his father's insistence, and, and that le lesson was embedded in their hearts. I do whatever my father tells me to do. I just reflect what he says to they knew the life of Elijah. If you read the life of Elijah in the Old Testament, you'll see that he did everything at the word of the Lord. They knew about John the Baptist. Everything John the Baptist did, he did at the word of the Lord. And so these disciples have learned to walk by faith in this way. And what you need to see here is that what they said and what they did was in the name of Jesus at the word of the Lord. Let me just say this. When we serve the Lord, we need to put our yes on the table that no matter where we are and what we're doing, if the Spirit speaks to us, we will say yes and do what he asks us to do. 
You say, that's kind of scary sometimes, isn't it? It really is. It's scary to hear the voice of the Spirit. We may be prompting us to get out of our comfort zone, to do something we're not comfortable with. But we need to be listening to the voice of the Spirit. We need to be believing God can use us in a powerful way. And our yes needs to be on the table. As disciples of Jesus, our yes just has to be there. I used to tell kids when I was a youth minister, I wasn't a youth minister long, uh, about three or four years. I love youth ministry, but I used to tell them, when we go on a mission trip, your yes has to be on the table. It's got to be right there because if you say no to anything, you're holding back everything. You're holding back all the work that God wants to do. You're holding back others who are on this trip. Just put your yes on the table. And I used to make them sign a yes contract. This is the yes contract. Every time I'm asked to do something on this mission trip, I will say yes and sign their name, whatever their name is. And I used to hold it back up to them and said, you said you would say yes every time. That's an important part of being a team and on mission and being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say yes to what the Spirit leads us to do and say. This is what was happening in these disciples' lives. So from the perspective of the disciples, and then habit of prayer, the ear for the Spirit, the heart of faith. God is going to use them. And as they step into this miracle, this man's feet and ankles were healed immediately. Unexpectedly to him, immediately without any time of, of healing, and completely. And this is a powerful, powerful miracle that a doctor writes about. Dr. Luke writes about this. Verse 8, look at verse 8 with me. The Bible says that immediately, in verse 7, his ankles and feet were strengthened. These are feet and ankles that have never walked before, never had strength before. And then in verse 8, it says, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, and he's walking and leaping and praising God. Luke ought to know. Luke ought to know the difference, and he's giving us this amazing miracle that takes place. And I'm sure these disciples are looking at each other going, did that just happen? Did that really happen? And the answer would be yes. He's running into the temple now. You better get in there if you want to see him in the temple with everybody else. An amazing thing happens when we begin to follow the Lord and the Lord begins to use us. And there's awe and there's shock and there's all kinds of joy going on in the disciples' lives and the crowd that sees him as well. You know, I look at this lame man and I have a conclusion about what God did that day with him. And here's the conclusion. This conclusion is not just based on this text, but on every text of Scripture that records what God does in the lives of hurting and needing people. And it's also based on everything I've experienced from God. And here's a very brief theological statement that you can take home with you, and here's what it is. God over-delivers. He over-delivers. He delivers more than you think he's going to deliver. He, he does it more powerfully. He does it in a better way than you can possibly imagine. He does everything exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. God over-delivers us. This man expected alms. God gave him healing. He expected a handout. God gave him a hand up. He expected to crawl away, and God enabled him to walk and leap and run away. He expected another meal, and God gave him a whole other life. God always over-delivers. Over he always brings more to the table than you can possibly imagine. You need to have an expectation that God is going to over-deliver in your life. 
an expectation that God can do more than you think he can, that God can use you in a bigger way than you can possibly imagine, just like Peter and John had no idea what was going to happen that day until it unfolded. And the man on the ground knew nothing about what was happening, but God over-delivers. Mark it down. Always God over-delivers. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Then there's the view from the crowd. The view from the crowd. In verse 9 and 10, we see that. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit in the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, there were thousands there that day, thousands. Read chapter 4, and you'll see that there were thousands there. So they're filled with wonder. They're joyful for the man, for his family, for his friends. With a miracle of this magnitude, they are just mesmerized. And for them, God came near. This is a big deal. Even those that didn't experience the miracle but saw it, God came near. They came near to the power of God. They came near to the heart of God. And they saw God pour out his power on this man. And that man made sure that they felt that because he was walking and leaping and running around and doing things they'd never seen before. Now, the truth is, we all need to see God come near moments, don't we? We need to see the God come near moments in others' lives around us, and others need to see the God come near moments in our lives. And you've had some God comes near moments. If you've come to faith in Jesus, he's your Lord and Savior, you had a God come near moment, and now you have God in you in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a supernatural moment. More supernatural than a man walking is that somebody's going to be with God forever and ever and ever in eternity. That's big. You've had God come near moments when you've prayed and God's answered those prayers. You've had God come near moments whenever he's broken the power of sin in your life and all of a sudden you're now free from that which held you in bondage in the past. That's a God come near moment. It's a God come near moment when God puts somebody else in your life that's instrumental in helping you move forward to follow Christ. Those are God come near moments. You didn't manufacture that thing. You didn't bring it about. God brought it about and it's a God come near moment and people need to hear your God comes near moments. Tell them. Now, let me tell you why you need to tell them. Because just like this lame man at the beautiful gate begging alms, people are lame spiritually, begging for anything that will fill their empty soul. Now, they don't have purpose, and they don't have meaning, and they don't have a future, and they don't know what to do about their lives. And without a God come near moment, you haven't yet given them hope that God can do something in their lives. I read something this last week that absolutely disturbed me. Over the past decade, this article says suicide has been ranked as the 10th leading cause of death in the United States across all ages. However, in 2016, it became the second leading cause of death among individuals 10 to 34 years of age. It went from second, I mean from 10th to second. It climbed up and over all those others because of increasing hopelessness. It further went on to say that suicide rates have steadily increased in recent years, and there's a whole study about this. Why are people losing hope? And I don't know why people are losing hope, but I know this, the Church of Jesus Christ and the name of Jesus Christ needs to offer hope for those people who are hopeless and lame like the man at the gates. That's why 
how God's stories are so incredibly important that you be a witness of what God has done in your life. This view from heaven is so incredibly important that we tell that God's story. That's the view from the crowd. And then the view from heaven. Uh, I, I want you to jump into verse 11 real quick. It says, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at, Sol at the so-called portico or the porch of Solomon, full of amazement. Now, this text doesn't say anything at this point about the view from heaven. But here's what you can see. If you understand that God is sovereign, you know that God has put all these people into place and this miracle has all been orchestrated so that many will want to hear what Peter then stands up and preaches, which is the message of the resurrection of Jesus and thousands more come to faith. So God set the scene for Peter to preach. Imagine how that fills the Lord with joy that this lame man is now walking to the glory of God. Imagine how that fills the Lord with joy that the disciples are walking by faith, that the lame man is healed, that praise is being offered up in the temple, that people are filled with amazing amazement. Imagine how, how exciting that is for God to see hundreds and thousands of people give their lives to Jesus who were lost and now are saved just because of the testimony of this man and the preaching of the gospel by Peter. It's amazing what heaven sees that we don't see and, and how heaven is motivated by the healing of people and the helping of people. That's something we can't miss. In a way, this man being healed, this lame man walking and running is a precursor to heaven where there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more death. It's a big deal. This uh, lame man walking reminds me of a poem I read years ago by John Piper called Justified Forevermore. It's a very long poem. I'm not going to read it all. But it talks about heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, and it zeroes in on part of heaven. And I want to read this portion of it. He says, And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky into this new earth. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as she could come. She leaped across the stream almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink, and I knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there, a big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are light and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ, the mind and heart to understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O oh, God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days and let us see the joy of what is yet to be. And may your future make us free and guard us from the hope that we, through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. It's a powerful picture of what heaven will be one day. And that lame man, leaping, dancing, running into the temple to worship God is a big part of the picture of the future of heaven. But before I close today, let me just elevate another miracle bigger than that one. That's a big miracle. 
But the biggest miracle, the greatest miracle, is that God could save an individual who is lame spiritually, cut off from God spiritually, destined to wrath and eternity separated from God, that God could save a person like that, like me, like you, and give them eternal life forever and ever and ever. That's the biggest miracle of all. And as you watch this man, this lame man running, you keep in mind that God wants to help you run spiritually and leap spiritually and rejoice spiritually and be able to be free spiritually, and he's available to do that for you now. I'm not saying God can't heal physically. I'm saying God every day can and does set people free spiritually as well. Don't miss this. You may not be lame today. You may have no problems walking around but you may be unable to walk spiritually. And the God that performed that miracle can perform one in your life as well. If he can heal the lame man, he can heal your lame marriage. If he can heal the lame man, he can heal your lame life. If he can heal the lame man, he can heal your lame thinking and your lame habits. He can do whatever it takes to set you free, but you must come to him in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the truth of it. Today, would you let the God who set the lame man free sets you free. Would you stand with me? And would you bow? And as you bow, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to ask our counselors to come. And as they come, would you consider using the legs that God gave you mobility with to walk forward and cease being lame spiritually? Let him set you free from sin. Let him set you free from the past, from habits, from all kinds of things that hold you back. Let him deliver you the way he delivered that man. Father, in Jesus' name today, I want to thank you for the opportunity we have over this next few moments with the song that we sing, the invitation that we give. But there's somebody in this crowd today, somebody in this room that wants to come and respond to you. And they may be frightened. They may be concerned about what others may think. But more than that, they want to be set free the same way the lame man was. They've got a burden or they've got something in their past or they know today that they've never really let you be Lord and Savior today. Let them see what you can do with them. Let them give you the opportunity to perform the miracle in their life. Father, I thank you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you come.